Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. Just a quick friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but if you like what you hear, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in want to go ahead and thank everybody for following along on social media. As many of you know, we're kind of posting some random snapshots now, which are just little things that I find, some tidbits that maybe happened on a certain day or, or something like that in hockey history that I think everybody will enjoy. And I've enjoyed reading everybody's comments and I post a photo from Getty. So if you're not following us on social media, be sure to do that. One last time, I want to thank Darcy Hordachuk for coming on. Got some great responses and some great feedback to his interview. Really well-spoken guy. I wasn't really sure what to expect. In fact, I didn't know what to expect at all. And uh, I was really pleased with how the final interview turned out. And I couldn't believe how well-spoken he was. We're definitely going to have Darcy back on at some point. I mean, so much still to talk about. We could talk about him playing with the Thrashers. Just He had just such an extensive career. So I want to thank him again for, for coming on. This week, Andy Sutton, former NHL defenseman, was nice enough to join us. For his interview, we talk about the 2000-2001 Minnesota Wild season, which was the inaugural season of the Minnesota Wild. Andy had just come off a quick run with the San Jose Sharks. I think he bounced around quite a bit between the American League and the National Hockey League. And uh, we had a good time. We had a good interview. He really gave some good insight onto kind of what it was like to play for a team in a startup. But the one thing I really took away from this interview is don't ever quit. His journey to the NHL, I think, is the most unpredictable, wildest, unconventional journey I've ever heard of. I mean, basically in high school, the NHL wasn't even on his radar. He ended up playing at college, and it sounds like really until his senior year, playing in the National Hockey League wasn't even a thought. And then he had a a great run and did real well and switched back to defense and was able to use his size, which was surprising to me. When you think about a guy being six foot six. 200 plus pounds, whatever he was. He was a big boy for sure. You would think he would be picked up just because of his size, if nothing else, but it wasn't easy for Andy. And we talk a lot about his journey and his struggle, and I really enjoyed that part of it. It it was cool to hear that side of his story. Before every interview, I chat with guys a little bit, tell them about the show, and sometimes we get off topic, but I usually don't include those parts of the interview. Um, You know, I usually just try to stick to the theme to keep it short and sweet. In this one, though, Andy had some pretty interesting stuff before we actually started the interview, and so I don't think he would mind if I went ahead and included this. We just talked about his journey not playing junior and to go through college and kind of, as everybody knows, I'm fascinated with that argument of, do I play major junior? Do I play NCAA? So we talked about that. We also talked a little bit about playing in the Atlanta market, and then of course, we do get to playing for the Minnesota Wild during the 2000-2001 season. As far as what's going on with me, not much. Was able to watch some Washington Capitals games this past week. I enjoyed that. They're struggling a little bit, so hopefully they'll be able to turn it around. I saw Austin Matthews got a huge payday. I can't believe come July 1, I think he's going to get like $15 million and then a $700,000 salary over the season. I mean, it's just ungodly money. I, I can't believe that. But I'm happy for him. He deserves it, and I think he's really helping hockey spread given his background in Arizona. 
Anyways, you're not here to hear me talk. No, no, you're here to hear Andy Sutton. So we're going to go ahead and cut to that interview. Before we do, though, one thing I want to apologize. The audio did not turn out so great on this one, and I'm not sure why. Andy called from a landline, um, so there's like some clicking in the background. It's, it's kind of strange. I don't think it takes anything away from the interview, but I apologize for that. While I do have a high state-of-the-art studio here, and by state-of-the-art, I mean it's actually in like my spare bedroom's closet, uh, usually we have some good luck with audio, but on this one, it, it just didn't turn out. Anyways, let's go ahead and cut to Andy Sutton as we review his 2000-2001 season with the Minnesota Wild. And I know we're going to talk about Minnesota, but before I guess we get started, I have to ask this because you played for that Thrashers team. Did it feel different playing for that team, given that it was kind of a market that you guys had a following, but not? it didn't seem like the city really ever captured you guys? Yeah, I mean... When I was there, you know, you're just kind of in it, and we definitely felt supported. I mean, it, it, it was it, it it wasn't like you know when I played in Ottawa or when I went to Edmonton, um, you know, or even Minnesota for that matter. But it it was it was really cool in its own way, and I that you know I kind of liked a bit of the ambiguity that you that you were able to uh, you know experience outside of the game. Like you could you could just be out and just be a normal a normal dude in that town or whatever, and then you know have have a good time and didn't you know you didn't have to you know, watch where you're going or what you were doing. So you could be a, you know, you could be a tourist in a great town like Atlanta. So I, I always kind of in, enjoyed that part of it. It wasn't, it wasn't so uh, crazy as some of the other places I played. Sounds a lot less stressful, basically. Yeah, I think it was, you know, and, and I, you know, same thing playing out West here, you know, and I, I signed with the Sharks in, in 97 and, you know, first time I came out to California, I was trying to figure out a, a way to get back. And when I became a free agent in 2010, I, Told my agent to get me a job with the Ducks or the Kings. I didn't care. I didn't care with who, and uh, I didn't care for how much. So I just really wanted to get back out to California, and knowing that this is where I was gonna, where I was gonna stay when I was done playing. So the only other question I had before we we talk about the Wild, and I, this was kind of interesting to me. You went the NCAA route. You didn't go the major junior route. Just kind of curious. Yeah, I um, I was a late bloomer. Yeah, to say the least. I mean, I, I actually almost quit hockey when I was 17, believe it or not. I was kind of, you know, going through a weird growth spurt. I grew a lot in a short period of time and got clumsy and, you know, then kind of, you know, got into a lot of the stuff. I think that young kids get into at that point in time mm-hmm. made me sort of question what I was doing. I ended up played in a summer league in Toronto, believe it or not, and played this one tournament and um, ended up having a really good tournament. And then at that time, Dave Barrett from the St. Michael's Buzzers was there. He was the head coach at the time and saw me play and asked me to come and play for the team. And at that time, St. Mike's in Toronto was the place to to go play Tier 2 Junior A hockey if you wanted to try to get a scholarship. And I, I didn't get drafted to the OHL, so that was kind of the, the route that was almost chosen for me. You know, and at the time to be, you know, to be six foot six and be undrafted with, you know, defensemen being so large back then was, was pretty crazy. And that ended up, you know, sort of, reaping big rewards at the end of my fourth year at Michigan Tech. You know, I had, I had 14 teams try to sign me the day after my, <laughs> my final game. Wow. Obviously an unrestricted free agent. So it was kind of a kind of a crazy, uh, crazy whirlwind career, to say the least. Talk about feeling wanted, though. I just so looking back, though, Ed, do you think if you had been drafted to play in the O that you would have gone that route? I honestly think I, I wasn't ready. I, mm-hmm. You know, I was uh, I wasn't ready to play with play with men on that level you know I um you know I didn't even make my midget team you know I, I got cut wow. from my midget team ended up going and playing in a small small town junior b league um 
you know, did, did pretty, pretty well as a 16 year old playing junior B against 21 year olds. I still had some good stats there and stuff like that, but it, and I didn't go the conventional route by any means, you know, and I really took me even the, to be honest with you, the four years at school to kind of come into my own. I had, I would say, I would call a lackluster career for the first three years and uh, probably, you know, didn't really do anything, um, all, all that, uh, all that memorable until the final season, my senior year. And, you know, I won defensive player of the year that year. I was an all American and, um, you know, I told you what happened with all the teams trying to sign me. So I, I, um, ended up signing with the Sharks and, um, you know, actually turned down more money from the St. Louis Blues, but I basically signed for the, you know, at, at the time though, was the you know, fir- first round, first round max. You know, I, I signed for pretty much the same amount. So, I mean, I feel pretty, pretty fortunate that I didn't get drafted, but was still able to to get the best deal possible at the time uh, it was time for me to go to play in the NHL. So it was pretty cool. I could ask you stuff about junior all night, but I, I know I don't want to keep you all night. I know you've got stuff to do. So let's get started talking, I guess, about the Minnesota Wild. And your time with the Minnesota Wild starts on June 13th in the year 2000 when the San Jose Sharks trade you, along with a third-round pick in the 2001 draft, for future considerations in an eighth-round pick. When you were asked about the trade, you were quoted in the Star Tribune as saying, I didn't have much of a role in San Jose. My confidence was down. But it's nice to know a team wants me. I'm excited, and I'm just looking forward to starting fresh with a new team. You're a young guy at this point. You're still in your early 20s. What was your initial reaction to getting traded? Well, you know, I, I think I had a sneaking suspicion. I had, you know, I, I was young and they had a lot of veteran players mm-hmm. and I had a bit of a tip on my shoulder. Well, this is the Sharks I'm talking about. I had a bit of a tip on my shoulder and, and uh, you know, I ended up at the end of that second season having it out with the with the general manager, Dean Lombardi, who that went in after, that much after the fact, year or so after the fact and, you know, apologized for some of my behaviors. But I, I didn't uh, I didn't cast myself in the best light there uh, near the end and let them know that I was not happy and that I didn't think I was getting a fair enough shake and uh, some other things and so when they when I got exposed in the expansion draft I I really wasn't that surprised and I think I just felt thankful that I got picked up because I I, mean, I don't think I I'd really done much of anything in my first couple of years you know and I was probably a little confused about my role I was a big guy so I was fighting but I never really you know was a was a fighter you know coming up through college so you know and I was kind of a, a two-way defenseman you know I had good offensive stats in one year and definitely tried to play hard in those defense and sort of saw myself as that type of player hopefully in the NHL so um, anyways when I went into Minnesota they they uh, you know we got there and everything everybody was excited because at that point in time I think it was you know it was more a selection of, of, of mis- misfits uh, components, but we came together nicely as a team because I think everybody was all in the same boat, which was, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty rare because usually you've got a bunch of superstars making a lot more money than everybody else, and everybody kind of came in there was all kind of in the same boat. So there was a real, it was a real tight knit group we had there, and um, and the city was obviously the cities were so happy to have us back, like beyond belief, and then we had that beautiful building to go into and. Everything was a fresh start, and there was really no pressure because we weren't really even necessarily expected to win. And I th- so I think in some regards it was probably one of my more favorite years. And then to get a chance to play under Jacques Lemaire, I mean, just it just kept just kept going. You know, Doug Reisrow was the GM, and I mean, it was just like um, it was a really special time to be there. And uh, you know, but I, I continued to have have sort of identity identity crisis of identity there. You know. Jacques tried to turn me back into a forward. You know, I was a, I got a scholarship to Michigan Tech as a forward out of St. Mike's, and then two years in, I was asked if I wanted to be a defenseman, and I said yes. And I obviously finished my career as a defenseman, and then you know, 
few years back and I played some forward in San Jose, mostly because I was fighting and then, you know, get into, get into uh, Minnesota and, you know, really it was a push to turn me into a forward full time. So, you know, that halfway point of the second season that, you know, I was playing less and less and I was getting more frustrated because I really, you know, wanted to get, to get in there and thought that I could do the job. So I went in and asked for a trade, you know, on the, on the premise that I thought I'd be a better defenseman in the NHL, um, of which I was told that I'd never be a defenseman in the NHL. And then, you know, 12 years after that, I retired as a defenseman in the NHL. So I kind of, you know, it was kind of one of those moments that really fueled me to say, hey, look, i got to take a deeper look um, at, at who I am in this game. So they were they were kind enough to trade me. Um, Doug was a – Doug and Jock and everybody were such incredible people that um, I think they didn't want to hold me back, and they uh, they traded me to Atlanta. I think, I think it was only like a week later after I'd spoken to Doug, and he probably respected me for – having the sense of identity enough to come in and ask for it. I didn't even do it with my agent. I just walked right in and said, you know, I'd like to be traded. I want to be a defense in this league. And I've been told I'm not going to be a defense here. So um, they traded me to Atlanta and, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, I guess sort of limping. We weren't a very good team at the time. And, um, you know, I was trying to be a defenseman and I'd obviously had some time away from that. And there was a learning curve there and I didn't, probably play that well my first year um, or so, if I'm honest. And then really the the big turning point for me was when, was when Bob Hartley came in. And um, one of the things he said to me that I'll never forget, he said, I've, I've heard you've got great potential. He said, I'm going to play you 30 minutes a night and we're going to find out. Wow. So he, so he did. He, he played me in every situation, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. And um, that was really when I started to realize that I could do it. And then I got the confidence that, you know, and beyond the confidence, and I really took it as a as a point of pride that that was my job to go out there and and do all that stuff for the team, and and ended up you know doing that through through the end of my time with uh, with Atlanta, and that's really what what got me the contract with the Islanders after that. So it's all, you know everything's kind of a building block, I guess. And you know to go back to kind of when you got to Minnesota or initially started speaking with members of the team, it sounds like Minnesota was really kind of that first block in the building block. And I know you played with San Jose, but it sounds like things didn't really go that well there. Do you remember who initially contacted you from the wild and, and who you first talked to? You know, I don't re- I don't remember. I remember they brought us all into Minnesota. They, they did a big, uh, this was in like the summer, whenever, right after the draft, I guess. And mm-hmm. The whole team and assembled us, you know, our jerseys were there with our names on them. It was a pretty, pretty cool experience, you know, to go in there and, and they introduced the team to the city and, um, that was a pretty incredible, pretty incredible experience for sure. On August 1st, you went ahead and accepted a qualifying offer from the team. So you're ready to go here. And training camp kicks off with 70 players in camp on Thursday, September 7th. And here's what I'm envisioning for an, a team in its first year with its first training camp. And, and maybe you can relate to this because you played at Michigan Tech. I'm curious your thoughts. Is the first day of training camp on an expansion team kind of like the first day of college where pretty much no one knows anyone and everyone's just trying to feel things out and kind of get to know everybody? Yeah, it was it was that way very much so. You know, there was there were obviously some players. Um, you know, we had some veteran players, mm-hmm. Sean O'Donnell and Curtis Decision and uh, a few other guys that I think, you know, some guys I think knew each other or knew of each other. And, we you know, we'd all played against each other. So there's kind of there's kind of that common, that commonality, you know, and, you know, I, I'd fought a few of the guys, Matt Johnson and Jeff Rogers and, and some different guys, you know, so we, um, we had a, you know, we all had a, an interesting, an interesting sort of back history together. And then there were a few young players, you know, like, uh, Mary, it was Marion Gabrick's first year in the league. I mean, which was, 
which was just incredible to watch that that young you know phenom come into the league and, and show us how to do things that I don't think any of us had ever seen before in the game. You know, so to watch some of these young guys come up and and be part of that was uh, was pretty incredible as well. You talked about a real hodgepodge, and I think you did a great job of describing it there. There was everything from NCAA D3 players at this camp through yeah. rookies like Marion Gabrick through you know veterans like Sean O'Donnell. Where did you yeah. feel at the time that you fit in? I was still very much um, a young player trying to figure himself out, you know, and I, and they and they they obviously took me based on I think potential mm-hmm. more than anything. I don't think I really, I don't think I really lived up to that. There, I think it was one of the hardest things for me, especially early in my career, was that you know I could come out come out one game and and look like an all star, and then another game come out and look like I had you know didn't belong at all. And I think that was really frustrating for for coaching staff and management early in my career. And I was doing my best. Don't get me wrong, but sure. it's, um, you know it wasn't it it was. Um, it got to a, gets to a point you now where you're just like, God, I got to figure out if I can, you know, if I can keep this up any longer, you know. And I definitely had those moments early on where I had to just make a decision, you know. So whether it was asking for a trade or, or just being like, Look, this isn't working this way. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna play my game and do it 100 mm-hmm. percent my way. And if it works great, and if it if it doesn't, at least I can hang my hat on that, you know. Um, it's stressful and it's it's there's not a lot of margin for error, and you've got to you got to do a lot of the you got to do a lot of things right you know, most of the time to have a successful career at that level. So it gets to that point where you've got to figure out how to do that. Do you think that has to do with playing such a variety of players in the NHL? Because you'll have everything from freight train like Eric Lindros out there. And then in the next shift, you've got Theo Fleury. Is it that variety <laughs> that makes it so difficult to kind of play consistently? You know, I think I think players in general, you've got to you've got to find your identity. And the hardest, whether it's being a player, even for a lot of people, and even just being a person in this world, there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on that that make it hard for variables to say the same. So when variables, like you're saying, you know, playing different players, different cities, or different teams, or different roles on the team, like as 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 the variables change, you've got to you've got to still stick to what makes you successful or makes you different. And it, it's hard for a young player to figure that out sometimes. And, and you can see it. I mean, you can see a player that's a, say a goal scorer and then he goes to a new team and he can't score any goals or a guy that's a defensive player and he has the worst plus minus on his new team or even in the you know, same team in the next season. I mean, it, it's really hard to, it's really hard to make it to the NHL. I tell people all the time, it's really hard to make it. It's even harder to stick around. Unbelievable. So training camp is going on. And like we've talked about, there was a huge variety of players here. But was there anybody that you kind of clung to and was able to bond with and kind of develop some chemistry with on or off the ice? Yeah, you know, we like I said, we had a tight group. You know, I um, I would consider the relationships I had there to be some of the best I ever had, you know, whether it was you know, Aaron Gavey or Stacy Roos, um, you know, Sean O'Donnell was a roommate of mine and I looked up to him just because he was a, you know, he was a badass and he was a hard nosed, tough player, stuck up for his teammates, led by example, good leader. So, you know, him and Curtis decision and, you know, Jamie McLennan was there as a goalie and I thought Jamie was one of the coolest guys that I ever met. And I was just so, so funny and lighthearted. And, um, you know, we had, we had a wonderful mix of guys. We really did. It was incredible. You know, Matt Johnson was a was a great great friend at the time, and um, I'm sure there's a fun time missing. But we we had a we had a really nice team. It was probably the closest team I ever played on. 
As the preseason games start, head coach Jacques Lemaire decides to not name a team captain, but instead dress three alternate captains, including your buddy Sean O'Donnell, Wes Walls, and yourself. As camp went on, you know, you're pretty young. Did you find yourself becoming a leader amongst this team? Well, I think I always had those attributes. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I battled myself probably more than anything, especially early in my career. But I, I think I was always, I think I was always meant to be a leader. I, you know, I'm, I think I'm a leader naturally, and you know, and I, I think as I, as I became more comfortable with myself in myself, I think those, those leadership attributes came more and more to the forefront as my career moved on. So I'm sure Jacques, being the genius that he is, probably even at that time saw saw something that maybe I didn't, you know, and maybe, maybe wanted to, maybe he wanted to promote that a little bit by giving me the confidence. You know, so yeah, I was I was so thankful for that, and to, and to be to be seen that way um, on that team was pretty awesome. Oh, it had to be unbelievable, especially when you come from somewhere where things hadn't really worked out, and to be given yeah. kind of that responsibility kind of makes makes people makes you believe that people believe in you, kind of thing, you know. For sure, and all those all those things kind of, you know, they might not hit you all at once, but as you start to pile them on top of each other and you have more and more positive experiences and things. I think that's where that's where an athlete or even a person can really start to develop that self-identity, that strong self-identity that kind of sustains you, you know? The regular season starts with back-to-back games on the West Coast, and I was actually kind of surprised by this, and you might not remember this, but you were actually scratched for game one. Do you recall what that was all about? I don't. It was probably the same type of thing. You know, I was, uh, at the time, I wasn't a top four guy, you know, and to, to be a defenseman in the NHL, you've, you've really got to be a top four guy to have to have security. And, you, and also, to, you know, I always found it really hard if I didn't play top four minutes because you never knew when you were going to go on the ice next or you were going to be pulled off, you know, short shifted or whatever it was. It's really hard not to be a top four guy. And I wasn't a top four guy. And um, I recall, uh, I can't remember who said it, but somebody in San Jose said, you know, we, you're a great player, but you make one big mistake every game. And that'll cost you. And that'll <laughs> and keep did, you out of it, I, yeah. I'd pinch down the boards and it'd be a two-on-one and they'd oh, score a game winner or something yeah. like that, you know. And so it took me a long time to to really, like, learn how to coach myself more, you know. So, you know, it's probably just that type of stuff. They, they probably didn't feel like they could, you know, rely on me 100% necessarily. And I can't say I probably blame them looking back. No, I get it. I get it. The next night you get back in the lineup, though, as the team travels to play the Phoenix Coyotes. And we're not going to go game by game. But I was really surprised when I reviewed this roster and saw the depth that the Phoenix Coyotes had. They had Jeremy Roenick. They had Shane Doan. They had Keith Kachuk. Can you kind of remember what it was like playing against the Coyotes at this point in your career? I mean, I was I was so full of, you know, piss and vinegar that I was, you know, I, I, I go out there and, and really just hit everything try that moved. to make a name for myself. You know, yeah. I, was, I was really, um, really committed to when I got a chance to really try to try to fashion, you know, a career for myself there. So I was probably just more fired up than anything, like even more fired up than anything to be, be able to play against some of the some of the amazing players that I, you know, grew up, you know, really looking up to. So I mean the chance to play against against JR and against, you know, Keith, who I ended up playing with later in Atlanta, uh, Keith Kachuk was was really really, really spectacular. I've heard he's one of the funniest guys off the ice. Yeah, uh, he's a, he's a, he's a beauty. He really is. I got got a chance to be kind of tight with him in Atlanta, and we played some golf together and stuff too. And he's a he's a sweetheart. Oh, what a guy! What oh, that's awesome. Barrett Jackman was telling me when they were playing, he would never go in. He would never be the first one in because he just wanted to hear Keith's stories all night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a great storyteller. Really, really great storyteller for sure. 
The Wilds home opener is October 11th, and before we talk about this game, I've got to hear what your initial impressions were of the Wilds' new state-of-the-art arena, the XL Energy Center. At the time, this 650,000-square-foot building supposedly was the best of the best. Walking in there as a kid from Canada, what, what's your reaction to seeing this unbelievable building? I mean, you're blown away. You're blown away. I mean, you, you can't even you can't even believe it. You know, I mean, I I almost quit hockey when I was 17. You know, I I almost took an internship. I, I studied engineering at Michigan Tech. I always I was always had education in mind and you know life after hockey. And I almost took an internship with the U.S. Navy my <laughs> summer before my senior season and decided not to go and to give it one more kick at the can. You know, to try to have a good senior year and ended up you know obviously doing all those things I did that year, which led to being able to play pro. And it's like, it's, it's really incredible looking back in retrospect, how, how much it's just like, you know, things are building blocks and they all roads really do lead to Rome in the end. Well, well, the first home opponent for the Minnesota wild was the Philadelphia flyers. And this game ends with a three, three tie. It was a game of first Darby Hendrickson, who hails from Minnesota, scored the first goal for the Minnesota wild. Marion Gabrick scored his, the first power play goal uh, of the Minnesota wild and you got in the first fight when you took on Gino Ochik, which is not a bad notch to have on your belt. What do you remember about fighting in NHL? I mean, he was one of the top guys in that era. Yeah, I mean, I uh, it was probably it was probably ignorance. Uh, you know, <laughs> Sorry about I, that. I, I looked. I I was going to do that. I mean, I was going to I was going to fight him. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I was I was trying to make a name for myself and. Um, you know, at the time, I think I thought probably thought fighting was the way to do that, and and uh, it, it really it really wasn't because it kind of it kind of painted I kind of painted myself into a corner. But I mean, I remember being super pumped up to to, <laughs> to scrap him, and I was thinking about it even before the game, and and uh, you know then then doing it. I mean, it was just like I was I was fired up. I mean, everybody in that stadium was on their feet, and I mean it was a, it was electric. I mean, so it was a it was a it was a really a an incredible you know an incredible moment in my in my career, honestly. I feel like that's something that probably is one of those moments that you'll never forget. Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget it. You know, and the odd, the odd time someone will like send me that clip, you know, and I'll just be like, man, that that guy, that guy had had such uh, fire in his belly. You know, it's just like I, I don't want to, I don't want to forget that guy. You know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of fire in there, and I was, I was, I can definitely see it when I go back and, and look at some of these things. But yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget that. Moving into November, the Minnesota Wild get the first shutout in franchise history when Manny Fernandez backstopped the team to nothing. You know, you mentioned Jamie McLennan a little while ago, and you we haven't talked a lot about Manny Fernandez, but but what was the goaltending situation like in Minnesota? Manny's another guy. I, I forgot. We we became really great friends while I was there, and he he really did backstop us. I mean, he was in both both goalies were incredible. Manny uh, Manny really took to that to that role as a starter there, and and had a really good long run that. It lasted a lot longer than the time I was there. During this game, evidently, Wes Walls gave a speech after the second period when the team was up only one nothing, and Scott Pellerin would later say the win was all Wallsy. Evidently, he gave this speech talking about enough's enough and we need to win. Who were some of the leaders on this team? I'm assuming Wes Walls with a speech like that was, and maybe Scott Pellerin. Was there anybody else? There were a lot of leaders on that team. Those guys definitely were, were leaders. You know, Curtis Lestigian was a was a big leader for us back then. We had a good connected group, like I said. So, I mean, there were there were definitely guys that, like we've mentioned, that that led the charge. But you know, I think I think everybody really tried to lead in their own way. There, we all took took a lot of uh, pride and responsibility for for what was going on there, at least to the best of our abilities. You know, 
going back to the hodgepodge, and this roster definitely had a hodgepodge. You had guys that were from junior, guys that were playing over in Europe, guys like yourself that had been in the NHL that split some time. What brought everybody so close together? Was it just that feeling of it's us against the world? Yeah, I mean, it's that. And, and you know, on, on paper, I mean, you don't have the Jeremy Roenick's and the Keith Kachuk's of the world. So you've got to, you know, you've got to take a more you got to take a more objective look at it and you've got to really, you know, try, try to try to do what you what you have access to to battle. And then beyond that, you 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 really have uh, you really have reasonable expectations, which kind of kind of frees you up a little bit. So that that in some regards is, is a liberating place place to play you know if you if you're not if you're not expected to win or you're not expected to to be the best then you've got you've got room to to fail i guess um and 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 when you have that you you know it removes a lot of the pressure and sometimes when you can play you know free of some form of pressure you can you can play more more like a child and more instinctually which is how i really in in hindsight it's what, what i believe the the great players do better than anyone else they they access that artist inside that child that childlike spirit that that makes you instinctual, which allows you to, to be, uh, you know, to be the, I think to be the best player. As the year 2000 comes to a close, Minnesota hockey fans had one game in particular circled on their calendars on Sunday, December 17th, the Dallas stars who had previously been the North stars came to town and man, did you guys welcome them home and make the fans happy? You ended up smashing them six to nothing. And I understand why the fans would probably be thrilled to see this after all the, the new team beat the old team. But was this a big win for you guys as well? I mean, the Stars team was stacked. You had Brett Hall, Daryl Sador, Eddie Belfour, Mike Madonna, Darian Hatcher was still there. Does this game kind of stick out to you at all? Yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, we were pumped up. And you know, in a in a season where you're not getting as many wins as you'd like, stuff stuff like that, you really live for. You know, you really do. So we we were we were about as pumped up as we as we could get for that game. Awesome, awesome. Hopefully, you guys did some good celebrating somewhere. At this point, yeah, yeah. okay, we did. (laughs) As I said in the intro, I think my favorite part of this interview is just hearing about how pretty much everything was working against Andy. And it's not like he was like had a goal and he was really trying for it. He just was playing to play and was having fun and was kind of doing what he loves. And then he just kept going and going and going. And next thing you know, he's in the National Hockey League. And even when he made it to the National Hockey League, it wasn't easy. It's just incredible to me. Like, as an outsider looking in, I look at him and, as I said in the intro, 6'6", this guy's going to make it no problem. And it seemed like no matter what, he had his challenges, but he just kept going. I really enjoyed that. And I remember Andy playing for the Atlanta Thrashers and, and playing defense. And I enjoyed that story about Bob Hartley. I know it was kind of off topic. We'll talk about more of the Minnesota Wild, though, during part two of our interview, which will air on Thursday at 8 a.m. So appreciate you coming by. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. We'll see you for part two of our interview on Thursday.